Welcome to Be There, Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lilia and Jake. And today we are going to be talking about St. Thomas More. So we wanted to let you guys know this episode went a little long, so we broke it up into three parts. The show notes has the details of those three parts. And also we wanted to let you know that the show notes has a few corrections that we had to make. Anyway, hope you enjoy. So he's a patron saint of attorneys or lawyers or whatever you want to. Solicitors, barristers. Yeah. Um, he's a patron saint of, of lawyers. And uh, I guess that's kind of why we chose him because I, we have mentioned I'm a lawyer. Um, it was kind of cool to see that Thomas Moore was not too excited about being a lawyer, though. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I was like, he's a perfect lawyer. He doesn't want to be a lawyer either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he complains about it a couple times, which I don't, I don't really, I don't have like a bunch of quotes on hand or anything. We won't dwell on that. But I thought that was kind of ironic as he's patron saint of a profession that he himself did not totally enjoy. But um, He's martyred during uh, the reign of Henry VIII. Um, yeah, in so the he's, English he's, Reformation. Yeah, so he's dealing with the results of the English. Well, it's Let not me, the results, actually. It's just the beginning of the yeah, English Yeah, kind of the beginning of that. Um, so to kind of place him in his time and place, he's born in um, 1478 in London, and he dies in 1535 in London. And in his lifetime, a lot changes in England. Um, and also lots changing in the world in Europe. It's the Renaissance, um, right at the turn of the 16th century, I guess you would say. Um, Spain's rising as like a world empire. They've just discovered uh, the Americas. And then the Reformation happens in his lifetime or begins in his lifetime. It extends far after his death. Um, and his country, England, goes from being a medieval Catholic country to being a uh, reforming you know, it, it breaks away from the from Roman communion during his lifetime. It doesn't go back really, um, except for really briefly, but we can talk about that later. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, his times. And then now you want to kind of talk I guess about we'll, his I think childhood. We'll, yeah, I guess we'll start with what's going on: childhood, then early education, career. Um, how he gets into kind of being royal, royally recognized and rises in the government. And then how him and Henry VIII kind of get on this fateful collision course. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like I said, he's born 1478, either the 6th or 7th of February. There's kind of a weird, really boring debate over his dad's diary entry about when the, his kid was born. That's not important. Um... I, I mean, I at least want to say it's significant because this is still Plantagenet England that he's born into. It's medieval England. Um, and, I mean, there's not a ton known about his childhood, but he's born in London during um, the reign of Edward IV, right? And then Richard yes. III <clears throat> takes over. Um, and then Richard III's defeated by the first Tudor king, Henry VII, at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, when Moore's just a child. But he, you know, he's in London, so these kings are parading through the streets, and there's a regime change, regime change going on in this, you know, not a big city where he lives at the time. Um, and his dad's actually in government. And his dad was John Moore, 
who was also an attorney. Yeah, a, a, lawyer. a lawyer and then judge. Yeah, and his mom was Agnes Granger, and they were married in April 24th, 1474. Um, Thomas was the second of six children, and I'll just go through the list really quick of the six children. So there was Joan, Agatha, Elizabeth, and two other boys, John and Edward. So, you know, I didn't hear much about any of them ever again in the biography I read. No, I I didn't either. That's weird. Oh, and also I kind of wanted to point out his background is kind of just middle class. Like one of his grandfathers, I think, was a brewer and one was a baker, right? I mean, not like just the local baker, but they had like, they became wealthy in those businesses, which are both involved with like grain and wheat and stuff. I don't remember reading about his grandfathers, actually. Yeah, I think... Um, I didn't read I, this biography. Yeah, I think they were brewers and bakers. So that's his back his background. Um, so let's go off into the London yeah. stuff. Um, well, I don't know if I have much more to say about the London... Except that his dad, John Moore, I guess we talk about him first. John Moore is in government, and actually, when Thomas Moore's a young man, I mean, it's clearly his father who's influencing his legal career path yeah and his dad wants him to be an attorney that's at least what i got from it um i think one of the first things that we both read was something on in regards to him kind of joking that he didn't really like being in london to a friend but at the same time it's like no i really do yeah i he wrote a letter to somebody telling them like oh how envious he was of the you know, the wonderful countryside that this guy is out in, and he's stuck in the dingy old city. But really, we have no reason to think that Thomas More was serious about that. That's kind of like a renaissance. Um, what would you say? I mean, it's just sort of a theme that it would have been easy for someone to take up in a letter being written and according to strict renaissance formalities. He was a city guy. He liked London. He stayed there his entire life, apparently. He didn't like ever leaving that much to go on diplomatic missions. Um, which he got involved with after his kind of political career started to take off a little bit. Yeah, so we can just run down a little bit on his like early uh, life, but yeah, there's not we're too get much. Ahead of things. Yeah, there's not a ton known. We know where he went to school, Saint Anthony's School. Um, we know that at least um, I remember if it was by the time he was like a ten or twelve or something, he gets sent to be in a pretty good position. Uh, being educated at Bishop Morton's house. And Morton actually shows up in a couple of his writings later. And uh, I know now, I mean, we probably all wouldn't like savor the idea of like, yeah, I'm going to send my kid to go live in some bishop's house. But back then, the idea was you would send a kid to go live with hopefully a member of the aristocracy, which the church at the time was part of like the secular aristocracy. And that person would kind of become a patron, and hopefully if your kid did well and was really doing well in their education. And that's what happened for Moore, is he stood out at Bishop Morton. Um, there's an anecdote where he had taken part in like a Christmas play and done really well. And uh, Morton seems to have been fond of him and predicted that he was going to be a great man. And Morton ends up helping him apparently go to Oxford but later on, like in Utopia, Moore mentions Morton really favorably. And in his uh, History of Richard III, he talks about Morton's role in all the weird 
politics of the War of the Roses. Anyway, Lily is gesturing to me to no, get on with it. No, I was just it. no, it's just like okay, go yeah. ahead. Anyway, um, I just wanted to say that that seems to have been like an important experience for him. No, I yeah, that's part of it, but I didn't get that from. And maybe his maybe spirituality also as, possibly is influenced by the fact yeah, that I'm he was sure. there. All I know is that I can't compare to St. Thomas more. <laughs> my was, spiritual. But his dad is a huge influence in his life because he lives forever. Um, like, I mean, not forever, but he lives almost as, uh, as long as Thomas More does um, to be a pretty old age. And he's in the same. He's a judge, like, a lot of that time. Um, but moving past that, I guess, yeah, I guess the next thing I'd say is Oxford. he's at Oxford for just a couple of years. He probably learns some classics there. So Latin. I actually do have more to say about the yeah. Oxford um, thing because my biography was more of his spiritual life. And um, so part of his time in Oxford, he met the Carthusians. Carthusians? Carthusians. I think so. He, he was contemplating basically still the priesthood the priesthood in his college years and he basically lives near the carthusians i thought that's when he's in the inns of court that they're next to the carthusian no it well the book that i read said that he 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 started that from when he was in oxford he's interested in it oh oh okay so here's the thing the thing is though is that his education gets cut yeah, and then yeah. his dad says, okay, you're coming to the Inns of Court. To study, yeah, to study his trade, which is yeah. law. And so in that time, you're right, he does. Yeah, I think the Carthusian house was like adjacent to the, uh, which was in the Lincoln's Inn. I don't know all of the different Inns of Court. Back then, apparently, when you're training to be a lawyer, you join one of these legal societies called the Inns of Court, and that's where you get educated and ready to be admitted to the bar. Also, I wanted to point out that part of um, his time in Oxford, he was translating Pico. Oh, yeah. That was and that means nothing to you, dear listener. But <laughs> Pico was like an Italian Renaissance man. So this is kind of more contemplating, you know, sort of an ideal Renaissance life and a possible role model and he does become well, a pico, renaissance yeah. humanist yeah pico does kind of encourage him in that but um is that accurate what i said no it is it is accurate from okay. what i've read um but in it it just um in his oxford years you could just tell that he was enthralled and just loving his time in oxford from what i was reading that he yeah. really was sad to leave but at the same time mm-hmm. He knew there was a duty and like... Yeah, but he never he lets to... go of kind of his translating and literary ambitions. No. Well, never until he gets into kind of more public office and heresy fighting and all that stuff. But Until he's asked to do yeah. so. Yeah. But, all right, so after Oxford, he goes back to London. He's studying law. And in 1499... It's sort of a significant date for him. He meets Erasmus. Erasmus of Rotterdam was not super well known at that time, but he was about to be. Um, he's a probably the most important Renaissance humanist, right? I mean, he becomes. I don't know anything. Okay. About humans, so I don't know. <laughs> well, take it from me. It sounds like he was. 
Yeah. He um, he does a lot to promote after this uh, the study of like the Greek documents of of the early church and New Testament, um, and part of that is actually due to coming to England and meeting Thomas More and his friends. Um, they had a mutual friend or acquaintance who was an expert in uh, in ancient Greek and was inspiring this kind of study. And anyway, it's important because Erasmus is promoting all of this kind of study right before the Reformation, which ends up becoming kind of, you know, what cost more his life. Yeah. But more was overall supportive of Erasmus' work throughout his life, and they were they're involved. Their literary careers were involved. Um, but when there's a really good story when Erasmus first meets More, or around that time, Thomas More takes him. And this is important. Out for a walk. This is yeah. This is important. <laughs> Go ahead. And it it if you want to impress Erasmus, because he liked meeting you know kind of important powerful people, uh, More really did the right thing because he said, "Let's go meet Prince Henry," and he must have been already well acquainted with the royal family because of his father, I'm guessing, because they get admitted to the palace where Prince Henry, future Henry VIII, uh, is. He's just a little kid, like he's like eight or nine years old, isn't he? Yeah. And they go, and Thomas More has like a poem ready or something, and um, they're like greeted courteously. But at some point, while they're invited to eat and kind of spend the day there, Henry VIII sends a message to Erasmus saying, "By the way, I expect for you to write me a poem." This is like a little kid saying to this, you know, Renaissance humanist, you know, dance monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Erasmus is like, oh no. Just a glimpse of... So he goes home and labors for like two or three days writing some poem for Henry VIII, future Henry VIII. I thought that was just a great anecdote about their relationship. But yeah. apparently Moore knew him, knew Henry from early age. Mm-hmm. And they really were kind of friends up until bad stuff starts happening between them. Uh, but Erasmus, meanwhile, um, gets into competitively translating ancient Greek texts with Moore and eventually comes and stays at Moore's house in London. And that's yeah, where he we'll writes. T- we'll talk about his wife and stuff later. But no, go ahead. Well, yeah, this is all kind of the same period though, isn't it? No, yeah. Go ahead. So Erasmus writes a book called The Praise of Folly, which in Latin, I think is like Encomium Moriae. And Moore is always punning off of his name because his name in Latin means a fool or idiot or something like that. So the title of the book, Praise of Folly, which is probably Erasmus' most famous book, has like a, a pun on Moore's name. And it's written in, in his house, allegedly. Um, it's dedicated to Moore, which Moore may or may not have appreciated. Now I really am getting ahead, because that's, that's a couple years in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but meanwhile, so he lives for like four years in the Carthusian house before he Next decides. He doesn't live. I thought he stayed there. Or does he just visit all the time? I think he visits all the time. I don't think he actually lives there. Well, but he does. So this is a gl- this is a glimpse of how like though. yeah, he does make their lifestyle and part of their lifestyle is, you know, them waking up to pray like midnight and stuff. You don't do that? No, I don't. Oh. I have, well, joking. I guess I could be with a nursing You could child. every time you wake up just Yeah. Read the liturgy of the hours. If you're just hardcore. <clears throat> I, yeah. But that's kind of how Thomas More was. I mean, he wasn't no, waking he up wasn't. with babies. No, he but. wasn't. Um, 
And so, anyway, uh, he just, he really follows their lifestyle, and it's interesting that he does as a, you know, young bachelor and stuff to have such a strict... Yeah. Because he would go to bed early, and he would have to wake up so early, and then he would just follow their prayers, and... He was a nice young man. Yeah. <laughs> he was a good kid, I guess. But then, um, at some point, he meets his, the father of his future wife. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the father's name, but Mr. Colt invites Moore to come out and meet, I think, his three daughters. Yes, he does. So it's a very Pride and Prejudice type of situation. It's like, hey, come out and visit me in the country. Did I mention I have three daughters? And then uh, Moore says later on that he actually kind of liked the middle daughter, but then he seems to have felt obligation to not humiliate the eldest daughter. John Colt. Yeah, John. He So anyway, he ends up deciding that he's going to marry the oldest daughter. Jane. Jane Colt. Oh, I thought her name was Joan. I have it as Jane in this book. This book has it as Joanna. I'm guessing that there's some discrepancy in how these names were signed. Because back then, people were kind of loosey-goosey with uh, with first names and, and name spellings and everything. Joan, Jane. I did, I did read Jane, mostly, I think, in the Richard Marius biography. So after that, they, you know, he's already in practice, I believe, by this time. And they're living in London in a place called Bucklersbury. All I know is that it made me think of Buckleberry Fairy from Lord of the Rings. Okay. Anyway. Um, they have four children. Margaret, Elizabeth, Cecily. I thought I think it's probably Cecily. Ces- sorry, Cecily. I, yeah. I'm not English. I don't know these things. So Margaret, was it? Margaret, Elizabeth, Cecily, and John. Right. And they have, I mean, Margaret's born in 15... 15- Oh five and John's born in fifteen oh eight, so they Whoa. just popped about. Yeah, yeah, they had one like every year. And then, meanwhile, during this period, getting into Parliament, um, definitely working with Erasmus on Greek and Latin stuff. And then Henry the Seventh dies, who apparently did not like more for his activities in par- Parliament, trying to oppose taxes. Yes, he didn't like more because. Um, Moore was newly elected into Parliament, and then um, when Henry was trying to buy off, this is Henry Cap- the Seventh. Yeah, Henry the Seventh was trying to for his do- for his uh, son's wife dowry. Dowry. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Dower. Dowry. 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 <laughs> Promise. I majored in history. Um, but the the dowry um, was part of the taxation or something of that sort, and then Moore uh, opposed it. He yeah. was like the first one to speak out against it, and so he was upset by that. At least that's what I got. From that's what I mean. That's basically what I got. Suppo- apparently, Henry the Seventh is notorious for hoarding wealth and taxing the realm to death, and he was not beloved. So more sticking up against new taxes for Henry Seventh is kind of a heroic thing to do. But um, anyway, later, it, the fact that he had done that kind of doomed him potentially to just sort of 
being a private citizen, that his political career was not going to take off while Henry VII was around. Yeah. But then Henry VII dies, and Henry VIII takes over, and everybody's super hopeful and jubilant. And apparently, Henry VIII also remembered more, and you know, more career thereafter starts to take off again. So he's back in Parliament, and he actually becomes an under sheriff of London, which was like partly judicial and partly kind of administrative position, apparently. But again, he's involved in London. He's he's you know a rising citizen there. Then 1511, his first wife, Jane Colt, uh, or dies. Joanna, or Joanna. Whatever anybody wants to say. Yeah, but she passes away, and sort of, I, don't, I mean, it's sort of treated different ways by different people, I think, but it, within like a month, he marries again to a woman named Alice Middleton, who mm-hmm. is older than him and also has a daughter already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was also named Alice, right? Yes, she was. Yeah. So they, um, I mean, and Moore, you know, is like a relatively young man still, right? I mean, he's only, what, I mean, he's like 30-something, right? He's got four kids Mm -hmm. and a political, or a legal practice political career. So I guess I kind of interpreted that as that, in that era, he probably needed a wife, like desperately, didn't he? Because the kids are really young, yeah. He needed somebody to take Yeah, care that's the kids. true, too. So that's, um, you said they were born between like 1505 and, or no, yeah, 1505, 1505 and 1508. And this is 1511. So they, these are little kids. Yeah, so they were little, and so he did kind of need a wife to. I don't know if he was in the position of life already where he had like a big house of servants and stuff, but. And so, well, I would. Still, but I don't I think would that say, matched his well, values to Okay, so Alice wife. had her own wealth. Because she had a husband who was like a yeah she was all, or a widow already right yeah she was already a widow, um, so just to make distinctions because my book and your book portrayed it very different yeah um, but my book says that he loved both of them and he his relationship with Jane he sees sees as more like you know in the beginning she was soft and sweet and. Things like that. But with Alice, it was like, you know, this this lady who just was had a strong personality of her own and just brought in the humor that he kind of needed and stuff. And so, not that he... You know, I felt like both... I mean, I felt like my book, at least, that I read, which was by Richard Marius, supposed to be one of the leading biographies of Thomas More, but I feel like it kind of caricatured her as like this... You know, she's not, like, that smart. She's always kind of grumpy. She's good with, like, the admit, the household stuff, like, making sure the books are balanced and mm-hmm. that nobody, no stupid philosophers are staying, overstaying their welcome at their big London house and running people out. Oh, and... yeah. Funny story about running people out. <laughs> um, Erasmus, here's a quote from Erasmus uh, being kicked out of their house. He said, I am tired of the country and feel myself becoming a stale guest to Moore's wife. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, another guy, another Renaissance humanist who she kicked out called her a like a hook-beaked harpy or something. But I mean, it's because it, I, I imagine it's sort of like one of those hippie houses where like there's a bunch of people hanging around and then suddenly like the homeowner shows up like hey get out of here I'm like hey man i that's how i imagine these philosophers hanging around thomas moore's i mean he house. he loved alice 
as well. It's just, it's funny. Their relationship was very different than his and Jane's um, from what I've gotten in this book. But he, I think he loved her just the same. And they had more humor, it seemed like, in their relationship. I think he, I mean, so he he wrote like an epitaph for what he thought was going to be his grave, but which did not turn out to be, right? But he, in that, he mentions being grateful to Alice for treating his kids as if they were her own. Which she did. And he, in his letters, at least to Margaret, his daughter, I think he, he speaks of her affectionately. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's, interpret that how you will. It's kind of weird. The Richard Marius, who is pretty interested in Moore's like private feelings and his conflicts and stuff that you couldn't really know anything about. He speculates that Moore also got married quickly because he wanted to definitively cut himself off from a career as a priest in the church before kind of taking the plunge into being like a family man under the theory that you can't, apparently at the time you could not be a priest or enter church if you had been married twice. Cause that was supposed to say something about your, your ability to be chased. Yeah. Um, and Marius takes a very like Freudian view of Moore's inner struggles with all that. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to veer into his family life. Yeah. While we can, before we get into the serious more topic or more of a serious topic. Um, so he was very pious. He wore a, what was it called? A hair shirt. A hair shirt, which sounds horrible. Sounds very itchy. Do you want to explain what a hair shirt is? I don't know any, I mean, I only have used my imagination on it. I assume it's literally an undergarment that is uncomfortable and scratchy and that you wear as a penance yeah because he thought that doing that kind of penance would keep you from being too worldly and too you want to talk about the other penance he would do on himself he would he like uh flog himself Uh yeah which is i don't think I, mean, at the I don't time, think it was super I mean, unusual at no, the time. Not at I the mean, time. not everybody was doing it, but I don't think it was like... It, it wasn't like the stuff of Da Vinci Code like it is now. <laughs> um, also, he just... So, in making sure that their their family life was very spiritual, they would, they would pray in the middle of the day. Um, they would pray in the morning. They'd pray at night. Uh, their conversations for meals consisted of theological conversations. Um, I'm trying to, oh, he made sure his he would always write to his kids in Latin, making sure they knew Latin. That sounded pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you read uh, the story, or did I tell you about it, where one time he was talking... So he was really proud of how educated his kids were, including his daughters, especially Margaret. But this is related to his family life, because yeah. one time, in like a sly way to brag about her, he was talking to some bishop, and he was in an official capacity, and he was going to show him like a letter that was relevant to their business together. So he pulls a letter out of his pocket, but it's a letter from Margaret. Oh, and it's written in Latin. Look how good Margaret writes Latin. And the bishop was amazed and decided he would... You know, he's like, wow, Moore, your, your daughter's amazingly educated here. So I'm going to send her some money as a reward. And this was clearly like a setup. I mean, it was really, it's, it was like endearing. Well, no, but... she actually does do scholarly translations 
Yeah. And stuff. So I she. Saw it. it was endearing that he wanted to brag. You know, he's. I mean, we love our children. Yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway. So there's a lot of you know, uh, he yeah. f- making sure that his kids did have a good yeah catholic foundation and um but what the thing that i found so interesting that can be found in a painting by do you want to pronounce this guy's name is it hans holbein yeah i think that's how you say the it. younger and right. it's uh it's the family of thomas more 1526 it's like a sketch for what's going to be a big painting right yeah which never got made and it's of the family and it's just it's where was I going with this? You were talking about how their education... I mean, it portrays oh, all yes. the women practically. The it portrays the women. But um, what I wanted to point out is just that the fact that... So in their theological discussions, more found it important for them to laugh and for the debates and the discussions not to get too heated. And so they had a court gesture. Oh, yeah. There. And I found that like so as like something so funny. So this gesture, the guy, he's actually in the picture, right? Yeah, he's actually in the picture. Um, and I forget his name now, but I think it's just... That guy was barely mentioned Oh, Henry, Henry Pattison. Hmm. Um, it also shows Alice Middleton's, or Alice Moore's um, pet monkey, if you look for it. Right? Yeah, and it's, it's... It's over in the far right. Yeah, there yeah. it is. So Alice has a pet monkey as well, but I just think it's funny because, like, I mean, it you get this more in the movie. Yeah, in a man for all seasons. In a man for all seasons, but it is said that he had a bunch of humor, and if you see some of his speeches and some of his responses, you see him kind of poking hmm. fun a little bit. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, I think it'd be appropriate now to start getting on to about the point when he writes Utopia, which is kind of a funny book. But um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was kind of it added some depth to him to know that about his life that he wasn't just the saintly, you know, suffering guy who was silent in the Tower of London. Yeah, I mean, and and it's just it's I think it's just great that he like he continued to try to do his spiritual he would do spiritual readings and. Yeah. prayers and stuff and once he built his big house he actually had like a library and chapel there where he would pray frequently especially once when margaret got really sick so we move on i think past family life i now. just yeah. well yeah i just want to i his family's going to continue to be in the no, background it is but i there's this one perfect quote there's a biographer explaining more saying had his time and tasks so set either in reading spiritual books, prayers, and other virtuous exercises, that you would think it Mary and Martha's house, fit to give entertainment to their creator. So I just think it's funny that he he did kind of have like this balanced life of like making sure that the spiritual life was there, but then that he also did his work, and that there was joy and happiness and all that. Yeah. I think that the biography I read did not catch so much of the joy and happiness. I think he thought of him as pretty relentless, like caring and loving, but also like a taskmaster who was making sure everybody was contemplating the classics and not wasting their time on frivolous things. So, mentioned he was a lawyer. He starts to 
gained some prominence um, through uh, getting appointed to do diplomatic work because since he knows Latin, he's able to participate kind of in the international types of discussions. It's not like now we're speaking Latin and everybody be like, yeah, good job. What a waste your education. <laughs> Um, we back, both did. Yay. Back then, it was necessary for participating in international discussions. It was like being able to speak English now. Because um, nobody spoke... I mean, I doubt that many people spoke English back then, right? Yeah. So if you want to be um, involved in diplomacy, you, you should know Latin um, or the church. Anyway, um, since he's also a really prominent London citizen, it, I think it was assumed that he could represent kind of like the merchant interests of the city. And when he, as undersheriff, helped kind of face down a mob that was rioting over like foreign interests in the city who were cutting in on everybody's jobs and everything, he comes to royal notice and he ends up getting sent on diplomatic missions. On one of those in Bruges, which is in Belgium now, or Flanders back then, um, he meets up again with Erasmus and he starts kind of during this mission about trade deals or something. He kind of starts whiling away the hours with a Renaissance fantasy of a perfect city. And it's partly perfect, partly like a satire about Europe, but it, it ends up being called Utopia, which means nowhere or good place in Greek. So he writes his most famous book, Utopia with Erasmus, um, at least around and Erasmus is going to help publish it. So there, if he was, he might have been a little bit annoyed at Erasmus when Erasmus dedicated Praise of Folly to him because Praise of Folly got pretty aggressive in its criticism of the church at the time. Even though Erasmus was Catholic until the end of his life, he was not afraid of criticizing them. So we're, we're not going to get deep into Utopia, but some things you should know about it in case you're interested. Um, is that he theorizes that a perfect society would be communist, so they would have common property. He talks about um, his ideal, what he thinks that their their religion would be based kind of on natural reason by itself without revelation. Um, and it's kind of monotheistic and also very simple and stripped down of any kind of like frivolous devotions. Um, and there's religious toleration up to a point like as long as basically as long as you're not an atheist and not publicly proclaiming wild religious theories you're sort of allowed to believe whatever you want to believe um you just can't doubt the existence of god you can't and you can't doubt that there's consequences for being bad in the afterlife that's significant because later on more becomes a prosecutor of heresy and some people some scholars think that he kind of goes back and betrays this more tolerant version of himself from uh, 1516 when this is being or 1515 1516 when this is being written right before the reformation okay so that's i think that's kind of the basics of what you need to know about utopia communism religious tolerance right okay So moving on, 
1517, the next year after Utopia is written, is kind of a red-letter year. Because on October 31st, Martin Luther, in, who's not known internationally at the time, uh, nails his 95 theses to the door of a cathedral, and that's kind of the traditional beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It takes a couple years for everybody to realize how significant this is. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, where do we go from there? <laughs> well, there's just so much. I, I'm seeing that... It's the, really... It's been, the narrative really... It's difficult to talk about Moore's life because so much stuff's going on well, in the background. Yeah, and that's... And we haven't even really talked about the whole... In, the Henry situation. I guess that's kind of what we're getting to. Yeah, we're going to need to. In the to. diplomatic situation. And the thing that I want to, I kind of want to bring up about the whole Henry situation is like at this time, once Luther comes out with this... Is that Henry actually? Oh yeah, Henry that's a good VIII, Henry the Eighth actually goes into um, attack be- mode. Attack mode and actually attacks Luther, um, especially in regards to the sacraments. Right. So he writes a book, and this at this point, Moore is now being lifted up into privileged place as like a royal counselor. Um, so Moore's been a successful diplomat. He took part in some. Um, and some lawsuit where Henry's trying to seize a ship from the Papal States, blah, blah, blah. He gets noticed, and Henry VIII remembers him. Now he's in a position of authority and confidence with Henry, and Henry wants to write a theological book about the stuff Luther's talking about with the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And Moore apparently helps him. We don't really know if Moore writes the book. Some people accused him of writing it later on when the Reformation was really going in England. Moore always just to claim... Uh, claimed that he was kind of the arranger and critic and editor kind yeah. of of it. And th- I mean, and then this this only happens in 1521. Like, you're right. There's so much craziness that happens right after that. Yeah. There's so much insanity. Like, it's not... Like, it's as if Luther opened Pandora's box and all these other crazy... I mean, he did. And I kind of sympathize. I mean, the stuff Luther wanted isn't insane. I mean... No. He wanted to clamp down on abuses of indulgences and corruption in the church. He wanted people to celebrate the mass, which he believed in, in the vernacular languages. And he wanted them to read the Bible in their own language. And I mean, there were issues, there were theological issues that were, that did set him apart from Catholicism, but you know, I, I think he was sincere. Yeah. So the people that branch off, away from Luther a little bit that that caused more trouble during this time is Zwingli. Yeah, everybody... Zwingli was a little bit more militant, but Zwingli was also inspired by Moore's friend Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Um, especially Erasmus liked to always talk about a line from the Bible that says something like, um, the flesh is of no avail, but I'm butchering the Bible now. But it, basically, the flesh is no avail, but the, in the spirit's uh, life, the spirit gives life. I think is what it is, and that's kind of taken as like a proof text for demolishing the sacraments and the the institutional church in the kind of the radical reformation, which more Martin Luther, I mean, was not actually trying to do, but the reformation quickly kind of gets takes on a life of its own far beyond what luther thought he was doing yeah and there's um other people that and then the one person i do want to bring up that will 
cause Henry to pause. Oh, but this is, I guess, in response to the peasants. Yeah, I think, again, we're it's so complicated. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So back in 1517, you got Luther. He starts the Reformation accidentally. Fifteen twenty one, you said. Mm-hmm. Henry's wanting to respond to Luther and writes a book about the se- in defense of the seven sacraments. Yeah. Moore's probably involved in that. Luther actually responds to that book and says stuff in his response that probably would have gotten him killed for treason or sedition if he mm-hmm. had been English and lived in England. At that point, Moore is given the task by Henry of defending the book, which he may or may not have written, at least anonymously. Um, and Moore writes this anonymous response to Luther, which is kind of his first entry into the, the Reformation melee, right? Mm-hmm. And it's infamous for being really vulgar in its yeah. attacks on Luther. Again, that seems to have been kind of Renaissance rhetoric. And because, you know, like if you look back at like classical literature, people, the Romans would were into the saying horrible stuff about each other. And more since Luther had said that kind of thing, those kind of things about Henry VIII was vigorously defending his monarch. He doesn't seem to have been just foaming at the mouth, you know, out of control. It seems to have been a deliberate pose that he struck mm-hmm. in defense of Henry VIII. Is that what you kind of got from your book? I didn't get as much of the vulgarness. It just kind of has this one thing of his one, you know, like upset thing. But he does, after he is uh, put in a position to Uh, because he is later put in the position to start responding to this. Yeah, so shortly after this, Bishop Tunstall, right, of London, licenses more to read heretical books and tells them, we need you to go after these these heretics. Yeah. And specifically, who more starts going after by 1525, right, is uh, Tyndale. Mm-hmm. who's working on a Lutheran-inspired, but also kind of Erasmus-inspired translation of the the Bible into English, or New Testament into English. Mm-hmm. And Moore goes on to attack, especially against Tyndale. All of his writings from this period are kind of ignored and not thought of highly by his scholarly commentators, except for probably the Catholic book you read, Lilia. Mm-hmm. But the guy I read, Richard Marius, did not think highly of these books because of... Um, he's interpreting more as being just furious against these heretics for trying to destroy his world. Yeah. Tyndale is the person that he does start attacking more. And it should be said too, that this affects more in a personal level with his son-in-law also, um, William Roper, William Roper, who's married to Margaret. Who's probably Moore's favorite. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, even, even the book that I read, um, by James Monty talks about the fact that she more likely was the favorite I mean, child. she gets to keep his head after he dies, so. Okay. But anyway, um, so he it does kind of get, it does hit more in a more personal level in so that sense. Prob- the book I was reading said that probably when Moore's away on diplomatic mission, right after Margaret and William Roper have gotten married, Roper might start then reading Luther's writings, especially the Babylonian captivity of the church. And he becomes convinced by Luther, at least for a while. And Moore comes back, and suddenly his son-in-law is a Lutheran. 
and this is really uncomfortable. He tries to like argue with him a lot or reason with him. And then, um, don't know exactly how Roper converted back, but he credited Moore's prayers with helping to reconvert him back to, to reverting. Um, I actually have a, a passage on that a passage on his response to Margaret. Um, so this says, Meg, I have borne a long time with thy husband. I have I have reasoned and argued with him in those points of religion, and still given to him my poor fatherly counsel. But I perceive none of all this able to call him home. And therefore, Meg, I will no longer argue and dispute with him, but will clean him clean give him over and get me another while to God and pray for him. So, I mean, he does, he had discourse with him before, but then they, you know, yeah. he does end up saying like, okay, I'm I'll just going to pray for you. I'm just going to pray for you. I think it's important to remember that relationship when we, if you happen to go look at some of the stuff he wrote to Luther or about Lutheranism or with Tyndale, because he didn't like turn in his son-in-law to be burned or anything. He, he tried to reason with them. He prayed for him. Yeah, and it was which an I think relationship, we need to get into that the scandalous part of Moore's. Yeah, well, okay. But, so the scandal is that when Moore goes from being just secretary to a position of power as the Lord Chancellor, when Cardinal Wolsey retires, or well, not retires, falls from power and dies in shame. I know um, he literally <laughs> dies. Well, again, we're getting after. ahead of it. So what has already been starting to happen? in these years of the 1520s is Henry VIII's getting tired of waiting for a boy to be born, to be the prince and heir. He's married to Catherine of Aragon, who is the aunt, right, of Emperor Charles V, Mm -hmm. who is king of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, very powerful European monarch. Charles V is locked into a death struggle with France for control of Italy. Really quick. Yeah. His relationship. Let's explain his relationship with Catherine. Uh, yes, I know. that's true. There's so much, guys. There's okay. so much in this time. So the backstory with Catherine is Catherine had been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. Arthur died mm-hmm. after being married to Catherine for like five months. I can't remember, but it was also like that. claimed that their marriage wasn't consummated. Supposedly. There's also a story that Arthur came out of the bedroom swaggering, making innuendos one time but nobody knows really yeah anyway henry still had to get a dispensation though from the pope at the time because he was expected by his family or at least by definitely the spaniards to marry catherine and to preserve the alliance that had been made between spain and england yeah sort of because they they spain and england kind of want to be allies against france but at the same time by the 1520s england and um, the Pope and France want to be allies against Spain and Charles V. Mm-hmm. That's complicated family situation. Yeah. But Henry kind of wants to be king of France too, because that's the old English hope for the Middle Ages. <laughs> so, anyway, at some point in 1520s, which we could look up, but let's let's just be general. At some point, Charles V gains the upper hand and defeats the French really decisively in Italy, and he captures the King of France in battle and brings him back to Spain. And Henry thinks, great, you should make me king now. But Charles V had other agendas and other stuff going on that he needed to worry about, so he couldn't afford to just 
you know, throw caution to win and put Henry in charge of France as if that would work. Um, then also Charles V's soldiers, who include German Lutherans probably, um, sack Rome and subjected to like the worst attack that it's ever had in history. I mean, the worst sack it's ever experienced. The Pope at the time, Clement VII, is totally terrified of Charles V at this point. Charles V is like basically ruler of Italy, um, and the Pope's kind of his captive, you know, in all but name. So he's not going to cross Charles V to help out Henry VIII divorce Charles V's aunt. That's the situation right now, right? Married his brother's wife, which is supposed under a papal dispensation because it might have been. It would have been a violation of like canon law and, and the yeah. Old Testament passages. To not come to And then diplomatic situation is complicated. Yeah. And definitely against Henry at this point. Yeah. Okay. So, meanwhile, Thomas More is rising through the ranks and becomes chancellor. Mm-hmm. After Cardinal Wolsey, who was the previous chancellor, fails to get the Pope to, get a, to grant a divorce and dispensation to Henry. Also... Henry VIII's picked up a new girlfriend just to be totally ready with that whole heir situation named Anne Boleyn. The thing is, though... Is this complicated enough yet? Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) he had already several mistresses, and one of those mistresses was Anne Boleyn's sister. And this is according to your your book, James Monty? Yeah, who was already married as well. Well... Yep. And this and this is important because it's going to come to play again. You mean that he wants multiple group he, he no, change or No, because Cardinal Woolsey like really does try his hardest yeah. to give Henry what he wants. He wants to give him the de- the you know the divorce. The, well, the, not the divorce, but the annulment. Yeah. yeah. And stuff. And but Henry like Woosley like had it in play of like you know have uh, having certain letters br- arrive at certain times and was working this slowly because of the situation with Charles V and the Pope being scared of King Charles. So Woosley had it planned out to like put stuff slowly, work with the Pope slowly, like oh yeah, you send people, we'll work it out, blah blah blah. And then Henry decides to send the Pope a letter saying, okay, I need this done. I also, you know how you gave you the marriage I'm saying is voided because of that weird dispensation? I kind of need you to give me that same dispensation in this marriage, which totally made the Pope angry because it was like, wait, that marriage you just said is null and void Mm. is what you're... I do kind of think, though, that Henry, from what I, what I read, though, it seemed like Henry was sincere in thinking that he might have become kind of cursed by marrying his brother's yeah. wife. Yeah, I mean, we saw that, too, in the film. Well, but I'm not, the film isn't necessarily no. what we should go off of. But, yeah, it's depicted in A Man for All Seasons. But from the book I read, it seemed like maybe he was sincere in also believing that this had been a example of the church doing something it wasn't supposed to do. Yeah. And that he was suffer- his regime was in danger because of it. Another thing that I will say is that 
it from what I read in the book, it seemed like Henry didn't necessarily he wasn't wanting to rush it as much, but that Anne Boleyn was like kind of putting pressure. Well, and then though she gets preggers. Yeah, she gets pregnant. So then that really starts they decide, okay, there's a baby on the way. We because need according to, to English law at the, the time, they had to be wed in order for it to be um, an heir to yeah. the throne. So many rules. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, though, more despite all of this situation and despite Henry kind of knowing that more doesn't approve of the divorce idea of, get, of getting rid of Catherine um, through this dispensation, he gets made chancellor to replace Wolsey. That seems kind of weird considering that he knew more was against that plan that Wolsey had been trying to push through, but more was kind of a safe bet because they had been friends. More was known as being like a kind of a protector of the church. And so he wouldn't be offend the church. He was known as being like a great London citizen who's going to protect the city's interest. He'd been in parliament. So everybody there liked him. So that's why he was kind of like a good compromise candidate. But as we were just talking about, events start to become very urgent and Moore is not backing up the king really. Like he, he's kind of acting oh. as a mouthpiece for the king, but he, everybody knows that he's not on board. Yeah, but we so he also forgot circumvented. To, yeah, we also forgot to talk about the actual scandal of his Yeah, so that's why I wanted to bring it up to the point where now he's Chancellor. Yeah. Now, Moore has been already trying to write against the heretics. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, I'm not trying to say that mean-spirited. That's what he thought that they were. I, I'm not trying to say anything rude against our Protestant brothers and sisters. But Moore was thought that he was fighting heresy. And he, as Chancellor, continued to do that. Um, the scandal that you're referring to, right, is mm-hmm. the fact that, I mean, six people were burned for heresy during his time in office. And he seems to have thought that that was totally the right thing to do and did not regret it. And this is, again, saying back with your with the fact that he backtracked from what he said in Utopia of religious tolerance. That's what people, that's what at least what some scholars that I would re- was reading were saying, that, you know, gosh, Moore just became this rabid, foaming-at-the-mouth heresy hunter and, um, you know, was, you know, ruining people's lives and then... Back in Utopia, he was saying that there would be religious toleration and it would be simplicity of religion, you know, kind of promoting Reformation before, you know, things got serious in 1517. Yeah. But, you know, and I'm not going to defend judicial killing of of people for for thinking, you know, the wrong things. I, I don't think that that's right. That's not what I'm saying. But at the time, in 1525, there had been the Peasants' Revolt in Germany where 100,000 people had been killed, right? Yeah. And that was largely connected by a lot of people with Luther's Reformation, that he had destabilized Germany by challenging the, the old order, and then chaos had happened. Also, in England, they had had a history of the like these kind of ideas, like Lollardy, which was called the... That was the sort of the native heresy of England had been connected with sedition and treason and stuff. So they thought really these ideas get out of control. People are going to get killed. We have to take it very seriously. And they had already had laws against the Lollards on the books, and that's yeah. what they were prosecuting these people. And under. one and one uh, one of the Protestant writers that came out mm-hmm. that Henry took his writings into consideration 
with Simon Fish, who responded to the Peasants' Revolt and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so his writings were basically stating that the monarchy was head of the church, like was head yeah. of the... And again, Morse friend Erasmus had promoted this idea that the secular government, the princes, a devout prince had a responsibility for reforming the church if the church did not reform itself. So there's these ideas swirling around that are kind of... I mean, it is sort of tearing apart Moore's world. I'm not saying that people should die, but at the time, I think Moore is correct that this was kind of a cataclysm. I mean, this was a civilization kind of sea change. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think it's important to remember, though, some of these people actually were hurt, and you might miss that in a overly pious treatment of Moore's life. But wait. <laughs> Man, you're ill. And so it's just funny that, you know, the idea of the the response to the Reformation by Spain was... Inquisition. Yeah. Well, I mean, Inquisition was also kind of a leftover, though, from earlier years. But, yeah, Moore was kind of portrayed as an inquisitor. Yeah. In the <clears throat> I just I wanted read. to say, I wanted yeah. to play that for that purpose. That said, he did deny that he ever tortured people. I mean, in the sense of like actually like tying them to the rack or something um and they threatened people with burning them to death but you also could get out of that by recanting um unless you're the type of person like thomas moore who just refuses to back down but um it was ugly times and this definitely is kind of a i mean this is a this is something that should give people pause about him at least that you should think through because you owe it to the people that were that died for their beliefs i think Mm-hmm. But he thought he was doing the right thing, at least. Okay. Anyway. Let's get into the whole mess that is going to be his... His downfall. Yeah. Well, so... And the, the, the thing I want to say is that Moore is such a lawyer throughout this whole thing. So although he does end up saying in his conviction, like once he's convicted, like his piece about what he really thought, at this time, everyone assumed but no one no one had heard him actually say anything against he really tries to dance around the key issue for a long 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 time yeah but what starts to happen is that more opens up a parliament which is going to last several years and produce these legislative acts that strip the roman church of its jurisdiction in england for things like i don't know divorces so that that can be decided by the Archbishop of Canterbury, which Henry's working on replacing. Um, these laws eventually get to the point where Henry gets really mad that Rome hasn't, uh, you know, ratified this decision that he wants. So he tells the Church of England, and the Pope after Clements the Seventh, I think, also tries to dance around and play with Henry by prolonging the century. Paul the Third. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, but the Henry VIII turns to the church and says, you know, you guys have cost me a lot of money. Give me, what was it, 100,000 pounds? Yeah. And the church caves eventually because they don't know what else to well, do. Well, because Henry starts really bullying them. Yeah. and Eventually gets to the point, though, where they're stripped of jurisdiction and where Parliament mm-hmm. declares Henry to be the supreme head of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. And the more of this time has lost control of that situation. He knows that he's just kind of the respectable face of this government that is no longer following his principles. And he's wanting to resign really bad. Henry waits until right after the church tell, you know, caves in and capitulates and says, okay, yeah, you're in charge. Um, we won't ever meet again or make any decisions without you calling the, the synod or synod however you pronounce it. And that basically I think the day of or day after that decision by the church of, of England, uh, more is allowed to resign quote unquote, really he's, it's kind of mutual. He's sort of fired, sort of resigns on Henry's terms. And he's supposedly for health reasons. He goes into retirement. He continues to write against Tyndale and heresy. But at this point he's kind of a marked man because Anne Boleyn does not like that. He's been opposing this, yeah um elevation of her to being queen and And one of her cronies is cromwell yeah so now there's also another new secretary named cromwell who's also portrayed as like the villain of the um of a man for all seasons yeah but he's a but he is actually the villain yeah this whole thing i mean he 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 gets a lot of people like bishop fisher too and yeah so he gets people killed too he has a reform um I mean, he he has like uh, Protestant leanings, right? As does mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn. She yeah. has an ideology also. Um, so thereafter, these people who have been standing in the way and preventing their their goals. At this point, Moore does something kind of weird. He meets uh, in his retirement. People are still kind of coming to his house and talking to him, and he meets um, this prophetess type of figure. Uh, I think her name was Elizabeth Barton. And she was known as the Holy Maid of Kent. She was a nun from uh, Canterbury. And she was making prophecies about the king's divorce and about politics. Everybody had been praising her to more, telling her, telling him that she was really holy and she's saying all this really um, amazing stuff. And at some point he ends up finally agreeing to go see her for himself, which seems to me to be kind of... Uh, reckless to do given the times but maybe he, he thought hey this isn't Spain this is England so he goes and sees her and they supposedly just talk about spiritual matters and he's impressed with her he writes her a letter afterwards warning her to, to stay out of politics because it's dangerous but um, it turns out that she has actually been being been uh, manipulated by people who are coaching her to say political prophecies at least that's what their confessions were that they read under duress later but it seems to have been kind of a conspiracy at least partly like a fraud after it had maybe gone gone too far um and her and some other um religious accomplices are are condemned to death by parliament well the carthusians are they the carthusians yeah part of that group too but um since more had visited her Cromwell's idea is let's also include Thomas More in all this because you can kind of tell that 
you know, the people who were critical of the king had sort of been drawn to Thomas More. They had known that he would be interested in these ideas. So he's kind of a, he's again, he's a marked man. Um, he responds to Cromwell, you know, with all this details of, I tried to tell her to stay out of politics. Look, I carefully documented my conversation with her, just like it shows in A Man for All Seasons. But at this point, As a lawyer he's would. going down. I mean, yeah. But that, I mean, they don't get him for that. No, but they. It's later on when they try to make a, a rule not that much everybody later. It's has. like months yeah. later, though. I know. It's a rule that everybody has to. Swear the oath. Swear the oath. And the oath is to uphold both Henry's new marriage and to um, consider his kids from that marriage to be the the heirs and also sever ties with rome yeah it's like a blank check to recognize everything that this reformation parliament has done so more is not going to swear to that and he is summoned personally um apparently so they i mean they did make everybody they tried to make everybody swear to this but he is summoned personally to a council of like um i think thomas cranmer was there the Mm -hmm. archbishop of canterbury and they're telling him okay time to swear the oath and he says yeah i my conscience doesn't let me swear that and they try to get at him which part specifically he disagrees with they tell him they're really disappointed because he's the first person in england to to refuse to swear it which i don't think is true at this point but they're trying to put pressure on him um he tells them that he would swear to uphold the succession he would swear to recognize Anne Boleyn as the queen because she is the queen now he doesn't have a problem with that, you know, swearing that, but that he won't say this specific oath, and he won't say why he won't say the specific oath. Mm-hmm. As a lawyer. Like, yeah. he just, like, I mean, all of this just, like, reminds me of, like, how you say, like, I can't say those certain things. I can't do, like, it's just, like, What I like is how every time he's in one of these meetings, they're like, hey, come on, sit down. And he's like, I think I'll stand. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he gets taken to the Tower of London for... For not swearing that oath because mm-hmm. he's uh, under suspicion of, of treason at this point. And at this point, it's just him and Bishop Fisher, supposedly, right? They're Well, they're kind of the two high-profile dissenters from this. Mm-hmm. Fisher really had kind of gone almost all the way to treason at this point because he was saying, by the end of his life, he was saying that he was hoping Charles V would invade England, mm. which does not make him remembered well there. But... Yeah. Um, but anyway, they, they get both taken to the Tower of London. Other, I think there, I mentioned there was other priests and monks and stuff who yeah, also refused to take this oath. Yeah. And they do get like almost like ceremoniously paraded in front of the tower so that more can see them mm-hmm. on their way to being killed because mm-hmm. they want to send that, a message. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I read. Like that's the, they did that to... Yeah. But during this whole time in, his tower, in the Tower of London, he writes he's allowed to take books and paper and write stuff you have to understand what's interesting to me i guess um and i talked that i wanted to talk to you about this is that i don't understand why henry is so gung-ho and like getting Moore's approval like it's just like i think they wanted to break him because he was famous and because well he forgot to mention one of the incidents which helped put him in the crosshairs was kind of his fault too was when the marriage happens, some oh. bishops come to Moore with a new robe saying, you know, we know you're retired and you don't, maybe you don't have the means to do the courtly thing anymore. Here's a, a new robe or new gown. Um, you know, will you come to the 
the wedding and coronation and everything of, of Anne Boleyn. And Moore says, uh, no, I'm not going. Oh, yeah. And you guys are sellouts for going. Yeah. And again, that puts him in the crosshairs. So I think he, he had partly through being outspoken made himself kind of an enemy of the the new well and then i think the fact that he was like he was a part of the group that was already trying to push away the reformation yeah i mean he was well known for he was it was not hard to guess what he thought about the law the specific oath that he was refusing to swear everybody knew what he thought about this whole situation Mm -hmm. so but he ends up in the tower for refusing to swear this oath and they regularly keep coming back and meeting with him trying to get him to mm-hmm. to trip up and implicate himself or to break down and just agree to swear the oath mm-hmm. they want his family to convince him to swear the oath um he actually his whole family does take the oath yeah but he also from what i read he actually does write to them and tell them tell like kind of tells them that this isn't their battle like it's okay for them yeah. to take the oath his friend Erasmus thought that it kind of wasn't his battle either, and he says later on that he wishes that Moore had left theology to the theologians. But I think that Moore, it wasn't just theology. I mean, this was a an oath to something that Moore understood as a politician and a lawyer, what he was saying, and he couldn't agree to it. Um, but so they... and. It, it, I don't want to go blow by blow through all the interrogations or whatever, but uh, yeah, I thought the movie A Man for All Seasons actually portrayed that pretty well. A lot of the lines mm-hmm. in those later meetings, once he's been imprisoned, are taken from his correspondence. Not necessarily in the correct order, but yeah, yeah. not it's not exact. But like when Cranmer tells him, you know, weigh a, a doubt against a certainty and take the oath, like that's something Cranmer really did say to mm-hmm. him, which Moore thought was was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, oh, the, they come with us for fellowship's sake. That was a real thing that someone had said to him. Um, and I think so we just move on kind of to the point where they decide he needs to go. So they send somebody, they start putting pressure on him. Um, they take away all of his books, like they like in yeah, the movie. And, his writings. and a guy who's a solicitor general named Richard Rich. Mm-hmm. really is sent to take the books and really does have a conversation with more. Mm-hmm. It's not certain exactly what is said. Oh, I want right. to make, yeah. And so just a, a little background of Richard Rich is the fact that he actually also has a conversation with Bishop Fisher and he's the one that helps condemn him. He goes into his, hmm. the only thing is that Fisher does explode and say things he shouldn't. Again, Fisher is like not, not Thomas. <laughs> no, well, well, it's because Richard Rich tells the bishop like, oh, by the way, Henry sent me here because he really wants to know what you trust me. Yeah, yeah. and then he, and then, and then Fisher's like, do you swear it? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I swear it. Like, of course he sent me, and it's like, no, he hmm. completely played him. So, um, I mean, it was it was known that this guy was not going to be truthful. Wasn't known to Moore, apparently. Though Moore, at this point, and, Moore says that he knew knew of Rich and didn't think much of him. Yeah. Later. But I don't know. Anyway. Um, but Rich comes to confiscate Moore's books and papers. And the last thing Moore wrote was a book on the sadness of Christ during the Passion. The agony, yeah. Um, which we 
I, we don't have time to talk about really, but no. um, supposedly during that conversation, uh, like in the movie, Rich starts to try to engage more in conversation to try to trap him with a statement about the the laws of Parliament that he's you know refusing to to swear to, yeah. and. Um, the famous line is uh, he tells him is like if I were king if parliament yeah, made me king would you recognize me as king and Moore says yes would I and yeah. then Moore says oh if they made you if they said God wasn't God would you believe that and he's like well no but what if they said that the Pope wasn't head of the church or something like that yeah and supposedly according to Richard Rich Moore said well they wouldn't have power to do that. Moore adamantly denies that that conversation took place, or that 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 he said that specific last part of it, because that's the part where he, you know, denies the statute that he's being asked mm-hmm. to uphold and trips up and commits treason under that law. Yeah, it's possible that Moore really did say something like that because he was tired. He all of his his books have been taken away. He had, you know, he was in a, a rough spot at this point, and he might have tripped up. It's nobody really knows. The book I read said he didn't. He would never say that. No. I I find it a little bit unbelievable that after all of that that he would trip up because he was. But very that's careful. the point of Saints, Jake. I mean, that's the point yeah. of. But I mean, whatever happened, he couldn't help at at this point now that this guy is going to go and and rat him out and be the witness against him in his trial. Yeah. So he's brought to trial for treason. Literally, two of the judges are Anne Boleyn's relatives. Um, the rest of them are, you know, people who are, are on board with the new regime's po- the new policy of the regime. Um, also, Henry was really pressuring everybody at this point. Well, Cromwell was pressuring them because Cromwell was being pressured by Henry, and so yeah, well, it was that Moore really did make pretty much convincing arguments until Richard Rich came. And then it was still kind of questionable. Like he, yeah. But at this point, they don't put you on trial at this period of English history if they don't know the result. This is not a real trial. It's a show trial to to kill him. Yeah. Um. So he's confronted with his testimony, especially by Richard Rich, and um, ends up being convicted of, of treason. Right when they're about to sentence him, he speaks up finally and says, you know, when I was practicing law, it was a custom that a condemned person got to say why they should not think they should be condemned. And supposedly, legally, that's actually a a type of motion to challenge the law under which you are condemned. It's like your last Hail Mary play to get the law ruled unconstitutional and get out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's clear at this point he's going to say something big about what he really thinks. And he does really lay it to them, uh, or lay into them about the fact that he just does not believe Parliament has authority to do this. Mm-hmm. He kind of really stakes it on the fact that one little part of the church can't go out on its own and redefine what the authority of the whole church is. Yeah. And um, I also want to point out that I like the fact that he brings out Magna Carta. Yeah, like as and the king's of, coronation oath. Yeah, who swore to uphold the church. Yeah, he brings those three. Like, so I mean, he's he's such an attorney. It's funny that like his whole life he didn't really want to be, and yet he, you know, is no, probably, he it it changes you when you've had that kind of training, I guess. Yeah, and but, so I guess we should say when he was executed and stuff. Yeah, and so like, obviously they all sort all the judges sort of say, well, 
the law is valid, so you are condemned to death. Mm-hmm. And he, um, the exact date I think was July 6th, Six, yeah. 1535. Yeah. He's taken to um, be beheaded. And um, I also should uh, want to make a few notes about his execution. Is one, um, he tried to give his executioner. Um, he was going to wear like his nicest clothes because yeah. at the time the fee of the executioner was they got to keep your clothes. Yeah. And Moore's clothes were nice because he had been a, a big wig. Yeah. But the tower... Executioner the guy, the guy in charge of the tower was like, please don't do that. I don't want to give him his... Oh. I mean, he says, you you know, this is guy's like a, a bad guy. You don't want to give him your a really nice fee. But Moore sends him like a, a gold coin or something as his fee. Mm-hmm. But more, it was supposed to be that anecdote was supposed to show that more was kind of like cheerful on the eve of. Yeah. So he of thought of it fate. as the idea of this is of like a bride going in for her wedding. Like he was. He was going home. He was going home. Henry uh, makes a point to not parade more publicly, like uh, to go to the, I guess, where they would publicly execute people. He wanted uh. it to be more hidden, like a. And yeah. the tower bridge, or no, that's the tower bridge is where he puts his head. Yeah. But from what I read is that he tries to actually put him in a different secret path because uh, I guess Moore, you were right. Moore did have followers. That, yeah. And Cromwell actually told Moore that while he was in the tower interrogating him that, you know, your descent is causing other people to not take the oath and to be dissenters too. And that might have given Moore kind of some satisfaction because he knew that people were paying attention to what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Moore gets beheaded. He seems to, according to William Roper, his son-in-law, who wrote a memoir about him, he told the the spectators of the execution that he was dying in and for the Catholic, the faith of the Catholic Church. And according to a pamphlet produced in Paris a little bit later, it said that he died. He said, told the crowd that he died the king's good servant, but God's first. The only member of his family to witness his execution was actually. Um, was her name Margaret Giggs Clement? I think so. She was a like a ward who had been who I mean was treated as a daughter by Moore, but she like he had gone and lived with Cardinal Morton. She had come and been part of his household for her education. But she, um, but she was a uh, witnessed him um, as removing like his upper clothing and tying a blindfold around his eyes before he laid his head down on the block. Yeah, um, I thought that was kind of a touching detail just to imagine this guy blindfolding himself willingly um supposedly he had a big long twisted gray beard at this point yes he moves it out of the way saying that his beard had done no treason so it deserved not to be cut Cut, yeah so he makes a joke yeah i mean which i mean like which once again shows like the humor like his yeah and also that he was kind of unafraid at this point Mm -hmm. Um, but that's how he dies. And it, like you said, his head was put on display for a while. And eventually it gets given over to his family. And his daughter, Margaret, keeps it for the rest of her life, right? Her, his head. But he was he was allowed to be buried. Unlike other traitors, which, once again, there's like certain hints of like Henry still wanting his favor. Hmm. Throughout his, you know, this whole well, incident he's not, and stuff. I, I don't know. He did have him killed, though. No, he did, but... <laughs> And on May uh, 19, 1935, uh, Pope Pius XI 
has a canonization ceremony for him to be yeah. a saint. And I would say about that, I read the sermon that um, Pius the who's it Pius the Eleventh made. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't say like, "Gee, let's all cheer for Thomas More because he really stuck it to those heretics and he killed six of them." It, it isn't mean spirit or anything like that. It's uh, what they say is that he suffered heroically for you know the truth about the church and that's pretty much it i mean they pray for and the, unity I, I was, Christians. yeah and reading the epilogue it, it made me think of like he's not um, a saint for being a heretic hunter per se that, that's he, he wasn't perfect but he showed heroic virtue in his final years facing this you know destruction of his world then and of the truth that he believed in well, I want to read this quote that's from, um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Father Germain. That is a difficult name. Marc Hadour? Marc Hadour. And I who don't know. Wrote, who, who wrote in 1961 about a more, um, he says, it may be that near, that the near future will face all of us with a problem of harmonizing or simply reconciling. Our loyalty to Caesar with our loyalty to God. Caesar, moreover, is no longer a monarch. He is a cabinet or a party. He, he is public opinion, which shapes and is shaped by the newspapers, the broadcasts, and the schools. Which just, like, hit home for me, like, so much. Because at some point, it is for us to... You know, to kind of live among everybody else, but at the same time, we do have to be brave, like the saints, and especially St. Thomas More, and at some point, we do have to say, this isn't what I believe, this isn't according to what should be. Mm. Going against the green. Yeah, for next episode is to talk about um, St. Bede, the Venerable, and I guess especially his history of um, the church in England and the conversion of England. I promise we're not going to just focus on English saints and, you know, British church history forever because that's, you know, we don't even live there. But um, since the podcast is named Bede Bede There, Done That, that. I thought we should better talk about Bede. St. Thomas More. Pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, Father, Son, Son, Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. I hope this isn't isn't too long.
Thank you.